You're listening to the Matheson Employment Law Podcast, presented by Brian Dunn, Head of Matheson Employment Practice. This is a regular podcast series for HR practitioners, employment lawyers, and in-house counsel, focusing on the legal issues relevant to all companies with employees in Ireland. Hello and welcome. In our last episode, we looked at the decision of Lines and Longford and Westmead Education and Training Board. That's a decision that has been extremely controversial over the past number of weeks for both employment lawyers and HR directors. And it's because in that case, Judge Eager in the High Court seemed to suggest that an employee is entitled to the full range of fair procedures at the disciplinary investigation stage, including the right to cross-examine witnesses and the right to be legally represented. Since that decision on the 7th of May last, two new decisions have come out of the High Court from Judge McDermott in the last four weeks. And both of those decisions, depending on how you interpret the Lyons decision, appear to contradict the key point. They both deal with the same question as to the extent to which an employee is entitled to fair procedures at the preliminary investigation stage. However, they both conclude that this right is really just confined to the formal disciplinary hearing stage, the point at which a decision is made. So these are the two decisions I want to look at today, because they could well be the solution to the Lyons judgment. But before we get to any of that, let's have a look at what else has been happening in the employment law world. As expected and discussed in our last podcast, as a result of the Irish Parliament reaching the summer break, the proposed legislation in regard to mandatory retirement ages and also protection for employees on zero-hour contracts are both now on hold until at earliest next October or November. In a separate development, however, Draft legislation has now been published in regard to requiring employers to provide information on the gender pay gap in the workplace. This came in the form of the Irish Human Rights and Equality Commission Gender Pay Gap Information Bill 2017. Bit of a mouthful. But what this provides in short is that for employers that have 50 or more employees, they will be required to provide information in regard to the gender pay gap and the scale of any differences in the organisation. The legislation is based broadly on equivalent legislation in the UK, which has attracted a lot of attention in recent months. Interestingly, the draft bill doesn't actually roll out the nuts and bolts of how this scheme would work. Instead, what it does is simply facilitate the Commission itself introducing such a scheme if it decides to do so at some point in the future. If it does, potential fines for offences under the legislation are up to €5,000. We'll keep you updated on this one. You're listening to the Matheson Employment Law Podcast, presented by Brian Dunn, Head of Matheson Employment Practice. The first of the two cases I want to look at today is EG and the Society of Actuaries in Ireland, a decision of Judge McDermott, which was delivered on the 16th of May last. The applicant in this case wasn't actually an employee, he was a member of the Society of Actuaries. However, the principles involved in this insofar as it was a disciplinary process, apply just as equally in the employment disciplinary context, so it's well worth looking at. EG was facing disciplinary allegations in regard to financial impropriety, allegations that had been made interestingly by his own brother, and which related to how he dealt with the financial affairs of his late mother and a second brother who had also since passed away. The proceedings themselves were an application by Mr EG to have a conclusion of the investigating committee set aside. That conclusion was that there was prima facie evidence to support an allegation of misconduct against him and that the allegation should now go before a full disciplinary hearing. 
As a member of the Society of Actuaries, Mr E.G. was governed by the same disciplinary process as all other members. And this process provided as follows. First of all, any such allegations would be dealt with by the Committee on Professional Misconduct. If that committee thought it appropriate, it would appoint an investigating committee to look into any such allegations. The investigating committee's brief would quite simply be to determine whether or not there was prima facie evidence to support an allegation of misconduct. In other words, was there sufficient evidence to support a presumption of misconduct? It didn't actually have to conclude whether or not the individual was guilty of the particular misconduct in any one case. If the investigating committee conclude that there is prima facie evidence of misconduct, well then they may refer a case report to the Society Disciplinary Tribunal. And that tribunal will then make a final determination on the allegation and, if appropriate, a sanction. Under the process, the disciplinary hearing itself allows for the right to be legally represented and allows for an individual to call and cross-examine any relevant witnesses at that stage. It also gives the accused an entitlement to all documentation that the disciplinary hearing would be relying upon and finally gives the accused a right of appeal against any final determination reached by the disciplinary hearing. The allegations against Mr E.G. in this case were raised in June 2012 and following a fairly extensive investigating committee stage, the committee eventually determined in November 2013 that there was prima facie evidence of misconduct against him and referred the case report to a full disciplinary hearing and that led to the current proceedings. Mr E.G.'s case in general was that his right to fair procedures throughout the investigating committee stage had been denied. In particular, he said he had been denied his right to an oral hearing and to present his case by way of oral testimony. He also claimed that his right to cross-examine any relevant witnesses had been denied and that the investigating committee had reached findings of fact. Overall, his point was that the degree of fair procedures that had been extended to him throughout the investigating process stage was inadequate. The Society's defence was quite simple. They argued that any evidence that he wished to put forward as part of his defence could be just as effectively provided in written submission and that he had been allowed to do so. They also argued that the right to cross-examine witnesses was not appropriate at the preliminary investigating committee stage as the committee was only seeking to determine whether or not there was prima facie evidence of misconduct it wasn't going so far as to make a final determination on the allegations. Bear in mind that at the time at which this case was heard, it was many months before the Lyons decision. So you may ask why was the employer raising these points when the Lyons decision has now decided it. It's quite simply because this case was heard before that. On the key question as to the extent to which an individual is entitled to fair procedures at a preliminary investigation, Judge McDermott referred to a decision against the Law Society Disciplinary Tribunal back in 2009. This was a case that had gone to the High Court and both the Supreme Court. And he read from that judgment as follows. In very broad terms, it can be stated that if an investigation process has the potential to result directly in the making of an adverse finding or findings against and or the imposition of sanctions upon the person under investigation, that person must be afforded the level of fair procedures and respect for his or her natural justice rights appropriate to a formal disciplinary inquiry. He then went on to say as follows, and this is the key part. If, however, an investigative process is in the nature of a preliminary step in which the investigator does not have the power to make adverse findings against or impose sanctions upon the subject and which involve merely the gathering and sifting of information which requires to be assessed 
in order to determine if there is a basis for the initiation of some further process in the course of which the subject will have a full opportunity to deal with relevant complaints or concerns, e.g. a formal disciplinary inquiry, then less formal procedures may be quite adequate and appropriate. In other words, what the judge is saying is, if the investigation stage is no more than a fact-gathering exercise, well then a reduced level of fair procedures is perfectly acceptable. If, on the other hand, the preliminary investigation is also going to decide upon the allegations or decide upon a sanction, as we saw in the Lyons case, then the full range of fair procedures do apply. Applying these general principles to the facts of this case, Judge McDermott found that EG was not entitled to the full range of fair procedures at the preliminary investigation stage only. And in particular, he was not entitled to cross-examine any witnesses at the investigation stage. On the separate question as to whether or not he was entitled to have an oral hearing or to present his evidence by way of oral testimony, the judge said that the obligation on the employer was no more than to provide a process by which representations could be made, but that it did not necessarily have to be by way of oral evidence. The court emphasised again that the plaintiff's application must be considered in the context of what the preliminary investigation stage does, and in that case, the outcome of the preliminary investigation stage would be no more than to refer the matter to a formal disciplinary hearing. It was not reaching a final finding of fact or a final determination on the allegations or a sanction. In particular, what the judge said was as follows. No decision was reached of a final nature against the applicant, nor was any sanction imposed upon him. The committee made no finding of fact or determination of veracity. That process is dealt with at the next stage under the disciplinary scheme. Judge McDermott was satisfied, therefore, that the degree of fair procedures that had been applied, given that it was only the preliminary investigation stage, was fair and reasonable, and accordingly the application to set aside the investigating committee's conclusions was rejected. We'll come back to the broader implications of this decision shortly, but before we do, let's take a look at the second decision. The second case I want to look at is NM and Limerick and Clare Education and Training Board, a decision from the very same judge which was delivered 11 days later. Again, this dealt with the core issue of the extent to which an employee is entitled to fair procedures at a preliminary investigation. To give you a little bit of context, the facts of this case are as follows. Mr NM, the plaintiff in this case, was a principal in a secondary school in the west of Ireland. He was being investigated in regard to allegations of sexual harassment by a colleague and also an allegation that he had inappropriately arranged for one of his teaching staff to provide private tuition to one of his daughters as part of that teacher's contracted hours. The proceedings in this case were an application by the principal to restrain the school from going any further with the disciplinary investigation. The allegations were first raised with the principal in July and September 2014 and the CEO was initially involved in this process in communicating with him to let him know about the allegations and also in meeting with him to implement his suspension at that point. The CEO then handed the process over to an external investigator. The employer's disciplinary process was as follows. Where there is an allegation of misconduct, the school must appoint an external investigator to look into the matter. The external investigator will then prepare a report in which he or she will set out its findings of fact and also determine whether or not there is a case to answer before a formal disciplinary hearing. If there is, the matter then goes before the CEO for a full disciplinary hearing. And the CEO has the final and exclusive authority in determining whether or not the allegations against an accused are substantiated and if they are what the appropriate sanction should be. The CEO may have regarded the investigator's report, but again, it's the CEO's final decision. 
An accused will also have a separate right of appeal against the CEO's decision to a third party. At the time the proceedings in this case were issued, the sexual harassment investigation was still actually on hold as medical evidence had indicated Mr E.G. was unfit to engage in the process at that time. However, the external investigator had reached a conclusion in regard to the school lessons allegation. The employee's case, amongst other allegations, was as follows. That in broad terms, his right to fair procedures in the investigation stage had been breached. In particular, he claimed that he'd been denied his right to cross-examine in the investigation stage. He also argued that the CEO was not an appropriate or independent person to deal with the disciplinary hearing because he had already been quite involved in the initial stages of the disciplinary process. The Limerick and Clare Education Board's defence in this case was broadly the same as the Society of Actuaries' defence in the last case we looked at, namely that at the preliminary investigation stage, fair procedures don't apply at all, or if they do, they don't apply to the same extent. And of course, this was in line with the conventional wisdom and line of case law up to the line's decision. The board also argued that the CEO was not materially involved at the initial stages of the disciplinary process, so it was incorrect or unfair to suggest that he had already determined the allegation and wouldn't be a fit person to chair the disciplinary hearing if matters reached that point. Let's turn now to what the judge said. Given that this judgment dealt with the exact same question only 11 days after the first decision, it's no surprise that the judge reached the exact same conclusion on the extent to which an employee is entitled to fair procedures at the preliminary investigation stage. He repeated the same quote from the Law Society, High Court and Supreme Court judgment that where a preliminary investigation is no more than a fact-gathering exercise, the right to fair procedures does not apply to the same extent as it would at a full disciplinary hearing. He also repeated the Supreme Court's endorsement of that logic that the right to fair procedures does not apply at every stage of the disciplinary process. Again, taking these general principles, what Judge McDermott found as follows when applied to the facts of this particular case. What he found in this case was that even if the external investigator did have an element of fact-finding to the process, it was not a final or binding finding of fact against the employee, that the procedure still provided for those allegations to be determined and assessed before the CEO by way of a full disciplinary hearing. That's an interesting development on the earlier case because in that case the brief was simply to determine whether or not there was sufficient evidence and if it should go before a disciplinary hearing. In this one it did appear to be a little bit more complicated because the internal investigator was asked to also make findings of fact and it's interesting how the judge dealt with it by concluding that because there were not final or binding findings of fact that the right to fair procedures still didn't apply to the same extent. On that basis and in the overall context of the disciplinary process, but critically because the matter would go before the CEO for a final determination at a disciplinary hearing, he felt that the degree of fair procedures that had been applied in the initial investigation stage were fair and reasonable, and in particular that the employee did not therefore have the right to cross-examine witnesses prior to the conclusion of the investigation stage. On this point, however, and perhaps this is where it is particularly unhelpful for employers, Judge McDermott did agree that given the gravity of the sexual harassment allegations against the principal, that he would of course be entitled to call and cross-examine witnesses at the final disciplinary hearing before the CEO if matters reach that point. It's a slightly separate point, but it's also worth looking at the allegation that because the CEO had been involved in the initial process, that he was prejudiced or compromised somehow from being the final decision maker in this process. And what the court found was that 
it was simply impractical to suggest that a CEO or a HR director in a case such as this would not have some degree of initial involvement or oversight in an allegation of this nature, and that it did not therefore mean that because of their initial involvement that they weren't capable of being independent as a final decision maker. And let me read from what the judge actually said on this point, because it's particularly helpful for HR managers and senior managers who are charged with decision making in such a process. It's inevitable that during an internal or an in-house investigation leading to a dismissal, the decision maker in some or all of the investigators will have some form of contact and they may be in communication of some kind about the issues involved. Those in authority are not to be regarded as hermetically sealed from each other. I'm satisfied that in the present circumstances, it is completely impracticable and unreasonable to require the chief executive or the head of human resources to become or be disengaged from the disciplinary process. Both have extensive responsibilities for the maintenance of standards and discipline within the organisation and the schools under their care. To bring all of that to an end, what Judge McDermott therefore found was that NM had failed to establish that his right to fair procedures at the investigation stage was inadequate and accordingly refused to grant an order to restrain the school from continuing with the disciplinary process. Regular listeners to this series will know that I always like to ask, what does this mean for you as representatives of large employers in Ireland? And given the potential implications of the regional lines decision for employers, any subsequent High Court decision which deals with the same point, the question of an employee's right to fair procedures at the preliminary investigation stage, must be important. But it's equally important that we understand this decision and the extent to which it actually does qualify or contradict the Lyons decision. And that really depends on how you interpret Lyons. Because bizarrely, depending on what way you read the Lyons judgment, these two new decisions either contradict it or endorse it. Let me explain what I mean by that, because otherwise I am going to be the lawyer that says yes and no to the same question. The most favourable interpretation of the Lyons judgment for an employer is that the right to fair procedures applies in full at the point in a process where the employer is reaching a determination on the allegations. On the facts of the Lyons case, it just so happened that in that case, Graphite reached a determination on the allegations at the preliminary investigation stage. Whether it was intentional or not, it actually brought down the full remit of fair procedures at that point. If that's how you interpret the Lyons decision, and if that is what Judge Eager meant in the decision, deciding it on that basis, well then, these two new decisions absolutely agree with Lyons, in that the three decisions all make the same point, that fair procedures apply in full at the point at which you are reaching determination on the allegations. The most unfavourable interpretation of the Lyons decision for an employer is the opposite, and that is that the full range of fair procedures apply at the preliminary investigation stage, irrespective of whether it is a fact-gathering exercise or it's a point at which the final determination is going to be reached on the allegation. In my mind, that interpretation must be incorrect, because it flies in the face of the vast majority of case law to date in this area, a lot of which we've already seen referred to in the two decisions from McDermott that we looked at here today. However, I can't shake off, and I am aware of, the two or three lines in the Judge Eager decision in lines, where he makes the particular point that he is aware that this is not the way that employers do things, but it is, in his view, the way that employers should be doing things. So we can't, by any means, tell you that this is an incorrect interpretation of lines. It just seems to me, of the two interpretations, the one that is most likely to be incorrect. 
if that is the point that Judge Eager was looking to establish in the Lyons decision, well then Judge McDermott in these two new decisions is absolutely disagreeing with him because he is making a very clear express point that the full range of fair procedures do not apply until you're at the point at which a determination is being made on the allegation. What is unhelpful, unfortunately, in these three decisions is that neither one refers to the other because of the sequence of timing around them. On the question of whether an employee is entitled to cross-examine witnesses, all three decisions do say, at a very minimum, an employee is entitled to cross-examine witnesses at the point at which the final decision is being made. Likewise, neither of the two new decisions even deal with the issue of legal representation because in both legal representation had already been conceded by the defendants. So for employers who are hoping that these two new decisions would kill off that suggestion also, unfortunately they don't address it in any way. And I think looking at the way the case law was going generally even before lines in regard to both the right to cross-examine and legal representation, I think it is unlikely that any subsequent High Court decision is going to absolutely rule that an employee is not entitled to either of these two elements in any circumstances as a matter of fair procedures. Let me ask a slightly different question in light of these two decisions. Are these two new cases helpful? Do they help employers post lines? In an ideal world, either of these decisions would have expressly referred to lines and dealt with it. In an even more ideal scenario, they would have disregarded it and allowed employers to distinguish it on its facts. However, it doesn't. Where the two decisions are helpful in my view, however, is that they do both support what I would see as the more favourable interpretation of the Lyons decision, that the right to fair procedures applies at the point at which the decision is being made in regard to the allegations, and not the broader general proposition that it applies in all preliminary investigation scenarios, including fact-gathering exercises. The last question then for employers is, what advice can we give you following these two decisions? The best advice I think I can give you is that post lines, if you want to avoid the full impact of the lines judgment, you should ensure that your preliminary investigation is no more than a fact gathering exercise. The brief of the internal investigator should be simply to determine whether or not there is a case to answer to go before a full disciplinary hearing. While in the Limerick and Clare case, the employer did seem to get away with a degree of fact finding in that particular case. I still think employers should avoid any element of fact-finding at the preliminary investigation stage. As a matter of practice and trend, a lot of employers post-lines had taken the view that they would wait and see what was going to happen next. They weren't inclined to immediately adapt the procedures and allow employees legal representation and the right to cross-examine, etc. at the preliminary investigation stage. They were instead waiting to see what the next big decision would do rather than concede it and then found that they wouldn't be able to row back on it. Those employers will, at least for now, feel that they have taken the right course of action and will probably still wait for the next big decision that clarifies this issue further. Overall, they are two interesting decisions. I think they are helpful, but I think this is an area we're really going to have to watch in the coming months. Thanks for listening to the Matheson Employment Law Podcast. If you have any questions or comments, please email brian, that's B-R-Y-A-N, dot done at matheson.com. This podcast contains general information about Irish law. It is not intended to provide legal advice on any particular matter and is for general information purposes only. 
You should not act or refrain from acting on the basis of any material contained in this podcast without seeking the appropriate legal or other professional advice. Tune in next time for another Matheson Employment Law podcast. For further information, visit matheson.com.